You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, this is an oldie but a goodie. I'm just doing this for my son's sake because he loves this joke. But, you know, I, I've told you before about, about the, the little boy who, who wandered into one of those old churches, old-fashioned churches, you know, kind of with the stained glass and, 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 and candles everywhere. And, and the only time he saw this many candles was at his birthday party. So he figures it must be God's birthday, so he starts singing happy birthday to God. So after he finishes singing, he starts blowing out the candles. And just then, the priest comes in to see this, and the priest yells and says, young man, stop right there. And of course, the little boy's freaked out. He, he runs. He runs all the way home. Well, the priest follows him to his house, knocks on the door, and the little boy opens the door, and he says, young man, where's God? The little boy just stares at him with, with eyes as big as saucers, and he's like, well, where is he? Where's God? The little boy turns around, runs up the stairs, and he's like, he's like, mommy, mommy, the church lost God, and they think I've got him. Well, this morning, before us, is a passage that shows us that, that God's presence, God's glory, has departed from Israel, and the people of Israel don't even know it. They, they don't even realize it. And something else in this passage is that this passage makes a, a, a parallel between the family of, of Eli, the priest, and, and also the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. Because in many ways, the fate of Eli and his sons illustrates the fate of the people of Israel. And so now this morning, the people of Israel find themselves asking the question, where's God? And so with that, let's pick it up where we left off last week. Let's pick it up in verse 10, where, where we see it's time for Eli to saddle up. Verse 10, And the Lord came and stood, calling us at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from, from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming against God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that, that the iniquity of Eli's house will not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Now, let's pause here. Remember, last week we, we, we mentioned that, that in many ways, the book of 1 Samuel is kind of a continuation of Judges, right? So there's like this, this ongoing thing that, that's been happening where the people are doing what's right in their own eyes. And, and yet, with that, we've seen that God has not been speaking to the people. Because of the sin of the people, God hasn't been speaking to the people. And now all of a sudden, last week we saw that, that, that God speaks to Samuel. In the middle of the night, he calls his name, Samuel. Samuel, three different times God calls Samuel by name. Each time Samuel thinks it's Eli. So he goes in there and he says, Eli, you, you, you called me, what do you need? Finally, Eli realizes that it must be God who's speaking to him. He says, hey, the next time you hear that voice, say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So God speaks again. Samuel says, speak for your servant hears. And now we have the message that God has delivered. And the message starts in verse 11 when he says, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel uh, uh, at which the, ears of, uh, the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Now, what does this word tingle mean? It can be translated ring. But it's a Greek word, an ancient Greek word, that really paints a word picture of you cupping your hands. And with cupped hands, you come up and you, and you like slap someone's ears with cupped hands and, and, and immediately it would make their ears ring. And so in effect, God's saying, you know what? I'm about to box someone's ears. 
Now, whose ears are going to get boxed? Well, namely, for starters, uh, Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Remember, last week we saw that, that Hophni and Phinehas, the two priests, were, were, were basically abusing their authority, abusing their position, and, and, and in addition to pocketing the proceeds coming into the temple, they were also sleeping with the women who served in the temple. And now God says, I'm about to box their ears. So now in verse 15, it says, Samuel lay until the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli, but Eli called and, and Samuel and said, Samuel, my son? And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from, from me in all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do as it seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord had appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So, obviously, Samuel's thinking, man, I, I hope Eli doesn't ask me what God said. Hope he doesn't ask me why, why God woke me up. I hope, hope he doesn't ask me what the message was, but sure enough, the next morning, Eli's like, Samuel, why did God wake you up three times? What was God's message? So reluctantly, Samuel tells him the message. He tells him what God had said. He, he tells him, look, God's about to box your ears. And, and in verse 13, he goes on to say that God said, I'm about to punish Eli's house forever. Now, by the way, if you remember, this is actually now the second time that Eli has been told that God's about to punish him and his sons, that God's about to punish him and his household. If you remember, the first time last week was when God had sent this, this mysterious, unnamed prophet who comes and, and tells Eli that, that both of his sons will die on the same day and that Eli will also die. And now, later, and by the way, we don't know how much, how much later, I mean, we read this like it just happened back to back. We don't know if, if it was one day later, one year later, 10 years later, but sometime later, now God tells Samuel the same thing. That God's about to box their ears. That God's about to do something. God's gonna punish the house of Eli. It reminds me of an old Arabian proverb, uh, pardon the French, even though this is Arabian. There's an old Arabian proverb that says, if, a, if one man calls you a donkey or an ass, pay no attention. But if five call you that, buy a saddle. Well, it's time for Eli to buy a saddle. It's time to saddle up. He, he, he's hearing this over and over again. Now, by the way, the important thing to keep in mind is, as we read this passage, as, as these events unfold before us, the important thing to keep in mind is, is that Eli has been given more than one opportunity to do something, to, to do the right thing, to take a stand and remove his sons from ministry. He'd been given more than one opportunity, and, and yet he failed to do it. And so now God is about to do what Eli failed to do, and that is discipline his sons. And so really before us this morning in this passage is, is the age-old biblical principle of sowing and reaping. In other words, in the Bible, God allows you to sow your sin. He allows you to sow your wild oats, just like Hophni and Phinehas were sowing their wild oats. But you know what else? God also allows you to reap the consequences, to reap what you've sown. 
The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will also of the flesh reap corruption. So you reap what you sow. Sometimes you reap with interest. Hosea chapter 8 verse 7 says, They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. And so Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, they had been sowing sin. They've been sowing their wild oats and they are now about to reap a bumper crop of consequences. Again, Hophni, his brother Phinehas, I mean, they're about to discover that just because their dad, Eli, was a disengaged father who failed to discipline them, that doesn't mean that God was. Just because their father was disengaged doesn't mean that God was. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, The Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. And by the way, can I add that God does not discipline the same way we discipline? A while back, I was at King Supers, and I saw this little boy being disobedient, and, and his mom says, that's one. You know how you guys do that, right? You know, that's one. And then, and, then, and then she says, that's two, that's three. And then all of a sudden he turns and says, ha, 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 ha. Like he's Count Dracula from, 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 from Sesame Street. One, two, three, ha, 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 ha. You know, and I know it didn't help the situation, but I laughed out loud because that was some funny stuff. And so they're about to reap what they've sown. It's time for, for Eli to saddle up because God says, I'm about to box your ears and your family's ears. Now with that, chapter four, the first 11 verses, now the people of Israel are also wondering, where's God? Uh, chapter four, verse one, and the word of the Lord, <clears throat> sorry, the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer. The Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up a, a line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from uh, here from Shiloh, that it may come uh, <clears throat> among us and save us from the power of, the, of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that, that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened to us before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? For these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. And it's as if someone else said, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and all of Israel was defeated, and, and, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great, great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. The ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And again, as we mentioned, the book of 1 Samuel was, was, is, is, remember, a continuation of the book of Judges. 
Now, if you go back to the book of Judges, you'll see that there are two key phrases that are repeated over and over in the book of Judges that sort of typify this period of about three to 400 years that, that took place in the book of Judges. Now, the first key phrase we first read in Judges chapter 3, verse 7, that says, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Now, in one form or another, that verse that we just read is repeated six different times in the first 10 chapters of the book of Judges. Six different times we read that the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. They had forgotten the Lord their God. I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right when he said, Satan has not filled us with a hatred of God, but with a forgetfulness of God. And so in the same way, little by little, century after century, the people kept forgetting about God. They, they, they kept turning their backs on God until finally we get to the last five chapters of the book of Judges and there's a new key phrase. And the, and, the, and the first time this new key phrase appears is in Judges chapter 17, verse six, and it says, and in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so it's like there's this progression that's taken place. They went from forgetting God and, and doing what was evil in the sight of God, and they kept doing that again and again, forgetting God, doing evil in the sight of God, till eventually they got to a place where, they, where it was just outright spiritual anarchy. Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. So much so that by the time you get to the end of Judges, you read of some of the craziest scenarios you can imagine that include rape and, and, and dismemberment and, and just crazy stuff. Now, really, it should come as no surprise that after three to almost 400 years of, of forgetting about God, rejecting God, doing what's right in their own eyes, it should not surprise us that by the time we get to 1 Samuel, that the two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, are also doing what's right in their own eyes. They're also forgetting about God. They're also rejecting God. And in so, they're, they're abusing their position. They're abusing their, 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 their authority. And they're abusing these women in the temple. And now in the same way, the people of Israel, much like their spiritual leaders, Hophni and Phinehas, the people of Israel are also doing what's right in their own eyes. So now they're in the battlefield. They lose against the Philistines. And now having lost this battle, they're like, where's God? Why did God forsake us like this? Why did God leave us? And so now they cook up this plan to sort of manipulate God to fight for them. So like, you know what? What we're going to do is we're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battlefield. Now remember, the Ark of the Covenant was basically a rectangular box, four feet long, three feet tall, three feet wide. And, and, and it contained various objects of worship, in, in, including the Ten Commandments. But they believed that the very presence of God dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant. And so they, they were basically thinking, you know what? If we bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battlefield, then God himself will have no choice but to fight for us. So they bring in the Ark. Now, by the way, Leviticus chapter 16 tells us that only one person, the high priest, was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he was only allowed to do that one time per year. And that was on what was called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Only one time a year the high priest could go in there. Otherwise, no one was to go in where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now, something else that we read in Leviticus is that if the Ark of the Covenant was ever moved, there were certain protocols to follow. 
You couldn't just grab it and move it willy-nilly. But the passage seems to imply they kind of grabbed it and moved it willy-nilly. And so the picture, again, is, is that this was a time period where, where people were, were not doing what was right in the eyes of God. They were not doing what was right according to the word of God. No, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And in their own estimation, it felt like it was right to grab the ark willy-nilly and start treating it like it was like a, like a lucky rabbit's foot. Which, by the way, that lucky rabbit's foot wasn't so lucky for the rabbit who lost the foot, right? So they're basically treating it like, like, like it's a good luck charm, which, by the way, shows us they were putting their faith in the wrong thing. Their faith was in the wrong place. As one Bible teacher points out, they were trusting in the ark of God rather than trusting in the God of the ark. Superstitiously treating this like it was a, like a good luck charm. And by the way, it never occurs to them that perhaps the reason God's presence wasn't with them out on the battlefield was because they had forgotten God. They turned their backs on God. A lot of us are like that today. You know, we forget God. We, we, we turn our backs on God. We forget all about God until we need him, right? Then, you know, the bottom drops out. Things happen. You know, but we've rejected God over and over and over. We've turned our backs on God. And then all of a sudden, we're out in the so-called battlefield and we lose the battle and we're like, where's God? Why would he do this to me? If God's such a loving God, we turned our backs on him. And so in the same way, the ark gets captured. Hophni and Phinehas die on the same day. And 30,000 died. And as we pick it up in verses 12 through 18, it reminds us that sin leads to death. Verse 12, And a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh that same day, and his clothes torn with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on the, on the seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came to the city, he told uh, the, the news, and all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? And, and the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were so set that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the, from, from the battle and, and I fled the battle today. And so he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward uh, from his seat uh, by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. And he judged Israel 40 years. How'd you like to be the guy that goes on to the Bible not only as old, but heavy? Now again, this was a time where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. But listen to this warning. The Bible warns us in Proverbs 14, 12. It says, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. You can keep doing what's right in your own eyes and doing what's right in your own eyes and doing what's right in your own eyes, but listen to this, it leads to death. Again, two different times, at least two different times, God warned Eli that this day was coming. I mean, first this unnamed prophet comes and warns him that if he doesn't deal with his sons, God will. Then God wakes up Samuel three times 
with a message to tell Eli and to warn Eli that he's about to box their ears. Well, now that day has come. And again, Hophni and Phinehas, I mean, I mean they were priests. I mean, they, they of all people should have known that the book of Leviticus taught how you were to properly handle the Ark of the Covenant. And yet it, it seems that they just have, have complete disregard for God's word, grab that thing willy-nilly, and lead it out in the battlefield as if, as if they're leading a homecoming parade, only to end up in their own funeral procession. And as a result, they both die the same day. Eli hears the news. He drops dead on the spot. Listen, the Bible warns us, uh, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin are death. It's been well said that if the wages of sin are death, then you should probably quit before payday. Well, they didn't quit and payday has come. And by the way, this reminds me of something else that Jesus had once said. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, he said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The apostle Paul simply put it this way. He says, I die daily, 1 Corinthians 15, 31. And so this leads us to another biblical principle, and that's this. Either you die to your sins or you die in your sins. Hophni and Phinehas died in their sins. And now as a result, verse 19 to the end shows us that, that the glory has departed. Verse 19, now the daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about that time of her death, the women attending to her said, do not be afraid for you have born a son. And, and, but, but she did not answer or pay attention. She named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel because of the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So she's pregnant. She gives birth and she dies, but not before she names her son Ichabod, which from the Hebrew literally means no glory. Kabod means glory. Ichabod means no glory. And so she says, because, because of her father-in-law and because of her husband and because the ark of God had been captured, the glory has departed. In other words, as went the, Eli and, 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 and Eli's sons, so went the nation. I mean, again, Hophni and Phinehas. I mean, they, they were just living in, in, in outright sin. It was as if the more and more they sinned, the farther and farther they got from the presence of God. And the same was true with the nation as a whole. By the way, this reminds, reminds me of another time that God and his presence left, that his, his presence departed. We read about this in Ezekiel chapters 8 through 10. In Ezekiel chapters 8 through 10, we read that, that the priests at that time were, were, were getting into idol worship, and they were leading the nation into worshiping idols. In fact, they were bringing these, these images of the idols into the temple of God. And a lot of these images were, 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 were frankly, pornographic images that they were bringing into the temple. So they brought an image of this pagan god and that pagan god and this pagan god. And, and Ezekiel paints the picture that there were so many images, so many idols, that the place had become so cluttered that God himself didn't want to be there anymore. And so Ezekiel has this, this vision. And in the vision, he sees, he sees a, 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 a throne on wheels called a, a, a throne chariot. 
and it's, it's on wheels, and, it, and it's self-powered. Now, it can go in, in all kinds of different directions. And, and again, it's self-powered. It, it, self-powered doesn't mean it had a Hemi. It doesn't mean it had a V8. It doesn't mean it was 300 horsepower. It was angelically powered. It was powered by four cherubim. And it can go in multiple different directions. And it seemed to have this, this glass or, or crystal platform above it. And then on top of that platform, there was the throne. And on that throne was this mighty being, God himself. Now, where was this mobile throne going? Well, Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18 says, the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and, and stood over the cherubim. In other words, it's on its way out of the temple. It's departing. So on the one hand, Ezekiel is, is seeing this, this, this amazing vision where he, with his own eyes, gets to see God's glory. But the problem is he's seeing God's glory leave. He's seeing God's glory depart. And the picture in Ezekiel is, is that the people of Israel had abandoned God, and so now God is abandoning them. And, and, and secondly, the picture in Israel was that yes, God's glory was leaving, his glory was departing, but it wasn't happening instantly, it was happening slowly, little by little. It was happening slowly, little by little. And in the same way, here in 1 Samuel, after three to 400 years of, of the people of Israel, you know, doing evil in the sight of God, forgetting God, doing what's right in their own eyes after three and almost four centuries of this, finally God's presence is departing. In fact, commentators often call this period of time between Judges and 1 Samuel, they, they call it a slow drift. The people were on a slow drift away from God. And then God's presence drifted away from them. Now again, they believe that God's glory, God's presence, it's called kabod in, in, in the Hebrew. They believe that the kabod of God, the, the, the glory of God dwelt in the temple. Now again, the temple in our day, however, in the New Testament, we're, we're told that we are the temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 both tell us that, that, that you are the temple of the Lord, that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. So that begs the question, if, if God's presence left the temple in Ezekiel's day, if God's presence left in Samuel's day, then we wonder, well, well, will the presence of God leave the temple today? You and I. Short answer is, is that, you know what? He may not leave you, but you might leave him. You might drift from him. You know, we, we think of the church of Ephesus, for example. We read in the New Testament, the church of Ephesus was, was a church that was once on fire for God. They had passion for God. They, they were vibrant. They were active. In fact, in the book of Revelation, Jesus actually praises the church of Ephesus for all the things they were doing right. They did this good. They did this good. They did this right. They were doing this good. He praises them for this and praises them for that. But then he has a rebuke. And he says in, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And notice, God didn't leave them. They left him. I was just waiting for the rapture. I, just, I, heard, I, heard, I heard that sound. I just thought we should wait just in case I have to finish this message up there. But that's disappointing. He didn't leave them, they left him. And so uh, we, we, we notice 
that this was this, this, this church that was vibrant, but they lost their first love. Now, what does it mean to lose your first love or, or leave it? The word left, epithemi, is, is, is a term that means to drift away. Just like in Judges, just like in 1 Samuel, the people are on a slow drift, slowly drifting away. That's what this word means. And, and, and so just like in Ezekiel's vision that he saw, and just like in the days of Judges, God's presence left them little by little, slowly, to the point that they didn't even know that God's presence had left. And in the same way, with us, it's not like one day we just wake up and think, you know what, today is the day that I'm leaving Jesus. Today's the day that I, you know, I no longer love Jesus. No, it, it, it happens slowly. It happens little by little. We just slowly drift away. I've told you a hundred times about the couple driving in their truck and, 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 and he's in the driver's seat, she's in the passenger seat, but her arms are folded. He's like, you know, honey, what's wrong? She's like, you remember when we first got married, how close we'd sit together in this truck? I mean, I was practically on your lap. Now look at us. You're over there and I'm over here. He smiles and says, honey, I haven't moved. And in the same way, listen, when you're feeling far from the Lord, guess who moved? He didn't move. You drifted. You moved. And so just as, as, as with the children of Israel, it didn't happen all at once. Little by little, they started to drift. But in the end, they found that, 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 that they're out in the ba- battlefield and, 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 and they feel like God's abandoned them. And the truth was they had abandoned him. And it didn't happen all at once. Little by little, they'd start to worship this God here, this idol there, this other pagan God here. And it was like the deeper they got into sin, the farther they were from God. And, and, and before they knew it, God had departed altogether. So what do we do if, if, if we find ourselves in that same place? What, what do you do if, if you find yourself in the, in the place of the Ephesian church where you have left your first love? You have drifted. You don't feel as close to God as you once did. What do you do if you find yourself in the battlefield of life only to feel like God's presence is no longer with you? Well, luckily, Jesus gave the prescription for the church of Ephesus. He told this church who had left their first love what the key was to getting their first love back. He said in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So what's the answer? What's three things? Remember, repent, repeat. Remember your first works. Remember how close you used to be to Jesus. Remember how it was when you first got saved and you were on fire for Jesus, how you would go to church as much as you could. You went to every church service, every Bible study. You would wake up early in the morning to pray. You would wake up early in the morning to to, to read the word of God. You were just so excited about the Lord. Remember those days. But then he says, repent. In other words, go back to that. Turn around from where you are now, this cold, lonely, desperate place, and go back to that. And then repeat. In other words, as he says in in, in chapter 2, verse 5, do the first works. Go back and do those first works, the things that you did when you were a new believer. All those things that seem silly looking back, but, but you were just so excited, you couldn't get enough of God. Remember, repent, repeat. Go back, rekindle that fire. If you've lost your first love, if you've drifted, if the Lord doesn't feel as close as he once was, it's not him who's moved, it's you who's moved. So remember, repent, and repeat. Father, we thank you. 
We thank you that, that these things were written of them that we may learn, that we may grow. So we pray that we would learn from their example so that we can grow in our love for you. Lord, there are times in all of our lives where we don't sense your presence. It's not as close as it, as it once was. So Lord, we, 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 we take this time to examine ourselves. We take this time to, to look in our hearts. Have we been building up little idols in the temple? Have we been bringing things into the temple? Or have we been neglecting and not doing the things that we did at first? But Lord, whatever it is, we pray that you would rekindle the flame that once burned passionately within our hearts. Help us to burn once again for you. In Jesus' name, why don't we stand and sing to the Lord? Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.